Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. Today's introductory lecture for Richard Diebenkorn is by Edith Devani, who will be considering why one of America's most celebrated 20th century artists hasn't been shown to a UK audience for more than 20 years. Edith is the Curator of Contemporary Projects and Head of Summer Exhibition at the Royal Academy of Arts. In her role here, she also curates a programme of contemporary exhibitions which concentrate on the work of Royal Academicians. In 2013, she curated an exhibition on the sculptor Bill Woodrow, followed by a retrospective exhibition on the painter Alan Jones in 2014. She also curated an exhibition of the work of Stephen Chambers, which opened in Istanbul in May 2014, and has worked on all, th all three of the large GSK contemporary exhibitions in the Academy's Burlington Gardens galleries. Edith was also responsible for conceiving and co-curating David Hockney RA, A Bigger Picture, in 2012, and she is currently working very closely with the artist Michael Craig Martin on this, the curation of this year's summer exhibition. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Edith Devani. Thank you very much. So as, as Amy said, the lecture is very much designed to be an introduction to the artist Richard Diebenkorn and a guide through the exhibition that we have here in the Sackler Galleries. And throughout, I will attempt to make references to events and other artists whose work has had some influence on Richard Diebenkorn's artistic direction, and also to give an indication as to what other artistic movements and trends were current at the time when he was working. I'll also attempt to offer some suggestions as to why his work is not better known in the UK and Europe. And as many of you know, um, it's, it's clearly very, very popular, and, and the public have, by their numbers to the exhibition, clearly enjoy his work, and the critics have been equally um, enthusiastic about it. So I think everyone is very pleased to have it here in London and have the opportunity to see it. So it is rather a mystery as to why this happens so infrequently. So when I started working in this exhibition in 2013, I wasn't an expert on the work of Richard Diebenkorn, not having in the past in my studies ever closely interrogated his work. But as is the case with every exhibition that we work on here at, at the Academy, the curators are expected to immerse ourselves in the work of a particular artist or movement or period so that we quite quickly build up um, a sound knowledge of that particular artist or movement. So in this case, although I was aware, quite well aware of the work of Richard Diebenkorn, I'd never done an in-depth study on him, and I'd only seen his work in um, museums in, in America, obviously never in this country. Um, so I, I, much of his work, for me, was referenced by reproductions. And as is the case for all paintings, but particularly so for the case of Richard Diebenkorn. His work is so sensitive and nuanced that the printed image rarely does it justice. There's that quality of light in his work that just doesn't come across well on the printed page. So working in this exhibition has been wonderful, and it's afforded me a much deeper discovery of the work of this extraordinary artist, which I, and I hope to lead you through my own discovery and, and, and give you a better understanding of his work. So he was American, he was born in 1922, and he was brought up and educated in the Bay Area. 
although he's very little known in, in, in the UK, there was an exhibition of his work at the Whitechapel curated by the then director Catherine Lampert in 1992. Um, and, and interestingly, Diebenkorn was still alive then. He died in 93. He was quite, he was quite ailing, but he worked very closely with Catherine on the curation of that exhibition. And Catherine was someone who works regularly with the Academy, and I had the benefit of, of talking to her about that experience. He was also elected an honorary RA shortly after his, his show, so it was a few months later he was elected here into the category of honorary membership, which is a category that's reserved for members who aren't resident in this, this country but are celebrated international artists, so it really is a considerable honour. And I think that's something worth pointing out about Diebenkorn, he's very much an artist's artist, the public love him, but other artists really respect his work and are fascinated by it. And interestingly, working up to this exhibition, the, 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 our Royal Academicians often ask me what I'm working on. And as soon as I mentioned Richard Diebenkorn, the excitement was palpable. And they came in great numbers to the opening reception to see his work. So that, that was rather a wonderful thing for us here. So the most remarkable elements of Diebenkorn's career are that he is closely linked to the west coast of America, where he lived and worked for nearly all of his life. And within that region, each studio move that he made um, had an impact on his work. So, so very, you know, if he moved to, to um, from, you know, the California area to, to, um, to from the Bay Area to uh, to Southern California and Los Angeles, considerable changes in his palette, in his in his whole mode of working. But the other and perhaps more important point to make is that his first mature work was abstract. Then he moved into figuration, and then once again he turned to abstraction towards the end of his career. And what's apparent within his work, and also clear in this election that appears in the galleries here, is there's an unfaltering fluidity to the work as it transitions from one genre to the next. And the Sackler galleries actually lend themselves wonderfully to his work because the configuration of three major spaces enabled us to set out the, the gallery in a very kind of comprehensive way, which I think aids um, an understanding of how he transitioned from one genre into the other. Um, he was a very prolific artist. He was very disciplined in his studio life, often working seven days a week. And consequently, he produced a very large amount of work over his career. But this exhibition is a very carefully selected survey of paintings and drawings. Um, so there's about 60 works in total. So just th looking at his background, when he was a child, he showed a very early interest in art. Um, he had a very influential grandmother who was very culturally aware and recognised this artistic leaning of her grandson. And she nurtured that by bringing him to galleries. She, she gave him images of, of, of things like the Bayou Tapestry, which actually he had a lasting impression of him. He became very, very interested in heraldry, which cropped up in his work a little bit later, but also very interested in English history. Then in 1940, he enrolled at Stanford at Palo Alto, where he studied liberal arts. Um, in 1942, he joined the Marine Corps, as everyone, as everyone had, to, had to then. And in his final year at Stanford, and against his father's wishes, who very much hoped that he would, he would concentrate on law or medicine, something that would, would give him a good career, he majored in fine art. He was absolutely determined that this, this was the direction that he, he wanted to go in. And he was influenced by figurative artists at that stage, particularly um, Edward Hopper, was a, was a very strong influence, not just for, for, for Diebenkorn, but for a lot of students at that time. But halfway through his final year, he was called up for active service, so he had to abandon his studies. 
and his um his his life in the marines moved him from from place to place and one of the things that he did later on during his his time in the marines was whenever he was near art galleries he would do his best to 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 visit places like the washington going to the corcoran and um the national gallery and also in new york he would go to 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 moma and there he would he would look at their collections particularly of european work so the first slide I'm showing here is a jacket, clearly figurative, and um, this was this was something that he did when he was in the the Marines, and it's um, it's done in pencil. Sorry, it's done in pencil, and it records the movement of of the body. The body is his own has left an impression on the jacket. So it's transferring that fluidity of the movement of the body onto the material of the jacket. Um, in, in a very strong form. And by setting the jacket, which has a strong um, corporeal form, with an architectural one, which is a door jam, it's a very interesting tension between the two, and it, it's something that he returns to later in his work. Interesting to note, actually, at this time, he was also painting in the abstract. So already he's, he's demonstrating his ability to work across two genres at the same time. So during his time in the army, he was able to continue to do semesters in art whenever he could. So he'd do work over the summer, um, you know, whenever there was an opportunity, he would he would go back to college. So he he went to um, the University of Berkeley in California, um, and during his time there, one of his tutors introduced him to um, to Sarah Stein, who was the sister-in-law of Gertrude Stein and had a fabulous collection of European art um, collected from Paris. And this was the first time that Diebenkorn had seen um, artists like Matisse and, and Picasso, Cezanne, um, in, 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 you know, up close, and it had a very, very profound effect on him. I can show you one of his early abstract works here. And you can see that there is a strong European influence. There's a there's an element of of um, the simplified Cubist style here, and you you can see you know that he's been looking at, at at images of works by Picasso. And the influences on students at this time were really in a state of flux. With the more decisive, you know, it was it was a period of great change because Paris for for some time had been the centre of the of the creative arts. And, and now um, it had moved to New York, and it became something that was kind of very established during his, his time as a student. And he and other students were well aware of this. And um, I quote Diebenkorn when he said, surrealism was very much around the first year I was at art school, that was 1946. I'm carefully separating this first year because the abstract expressionist thing started to be felt in the second year that I was there. The third year that I was there, it really wiped out the surrealist influence. So you can see he was actually at college at quite an exciting time. There was a lot of changes happening. So he becomes increasingly aware of the abstract expressionist movement. And he also reads a lot of periodicals, particularly Clement Greenberg's writing on the movement in um, magazines such as Din magazine, and was very struck by the work of Robert Motherwell and, um, and William Baziotis, which were reproduced in the magazine. In 1946, um, soon after doing this painting, he actually went to New York and in thinking that it could be possible for him to stay there, to live there for a while. And he got to know some of the abstract expressionist artists, mainly um, Bradley Walker Tomlin, William Baziotis, but it didn't, it, it was very expensive and it, it didn't really work out for him. So he's back in the Bay Area again. He meets up with Rothko, who was a visiting professor at the CSFA. 
And that same year, he also meets Clifford Still for the first time. And, and Clifford Still had quite a profound effect on him because Clifford Still was incredibly disciplined in the way that he approached his work. And that was something that Diebenkorn both recognised but really valued as well and, and, and learned a lot for it from it. So the, the, the effect of the accumulation of all of these semesters that he did during his time in service meant that he was finally awarded a BA, and this enabled him to teach at the CFSA, which he, which he did. By 1950, he was determined to complete his, um, his education, and he goes to Albuquerque in New Mexico, where he enrolls on a master's program. And by this stage, he has turned completely to abstraction. Um, but this this picture is the first in our exhibition. We thought it was a really good image to start off with. It's a fabulous work. It's, it's quite atypical of his work in that it lacks um, significant colour. It's predominantly monochromatic, although there are other elements of colour in it. And it's also, it's been given a title. He, he, he usually um, doesn't title his work. He just calls them by a number and the place that they were made, the studio where they were made. But this is called Disintegrating Pig. And even though at the time he, um, he was quoted as, as, as saying to, to a fellow student that, you know, if you see an image, get rid of it. Here we have him illustrating a pig. It's actually an upside down pig. And um, the ears are just here with the snout here. And the fact that it's upside down and it's, it's kind of very abstracted in form, you know, it's that sense of it disintegrating. So he didn't quite destroy his image. But what's, what's interesting, actually, is when you look at something like by Willem de Kooning. I mean, de Kooning famously was one of the abstract expressionists who never really left um, the element of representation behind. And Diebenkorn was interested enough in de Kooning's work to do a lot of black, very black-based drawings. Um, and I, I think there has to be some influence here with the, the disintegrated pig. Um, but the other thing about the pig was that he was living in a, a very sort of natural environment, quite different from the kind of city environment that he'd come from originally in the Bay Area, and he was surrounded by a lot of livestock, so he was kind of fascinated by it. So it's an, an, an example, an early example of his, his environment finding its way into his work. And then this is one of the um, abstract works that he did in Albuquerque. Again, you know, very, very strong colours. He's, he's moved away from the black and white, but there is still this element of representation. You've got a little emblem up here, which I don't know if you can see it from, from the back, but it's, it's, it, it looks like a kind of broken Maltese cross. And, and this, um, the, the tendency, the, the general thought is that it's, it's represented of a shield. So again, it goes back to this idea of, of his interest in heraldry, but very, brave colours um, depicting the landscape, you know, that very, very strong pink and these, these big planes of colour. So in 1951, in late summer, he takes a low-flying flight from Albuquerque to San Francisco. The, one of the things he did when he got to San Francisco was to see uh, an exhibition by the, um, by the, the artist Arshiel Gorky at San Francisco Museum, but, and, but it was not just seeing Gorky's um, exhibition that had a profound effect on him, it was also the flight, it was also this, this way of looking at the landscape in a very different way. Um, and of the flight he noted, and I quote, the aerial view showed me a rich variety of ways of treating a flat plane, like flattened mud or paint, 
forms operating in shallow depth reveal a huge range of possibilities available to the painter. So it really was a, a revelation for him to see the land in this way, to see elements of the land that had been um, tended and farmed and elements of the land that hadn't and how that found its way into, into his work. And I said at the beginning we included drawings um, in, in this exhibition and for each of the the, the uh, periods, there are associated drawings, and he was a prolific drawer. Drawings um, were something that he started doing from childhood. He, he remembers um, being given those cardboard pieces that you get from dry cleaners when a shirt has been dry cleaned, and drawing on the calendared side of that. So it was the shiny side that he liked, and that gave him a, a kind of lifelong interest in, in, in using shiny paper for his drawings. But it was a very important part of his, his um, output. And he never used drawings as working drawings. So the drawings weren't a means by which he would develop a painting. They were explorations in their own right. And he did value them. And you know, there, there's very many instances throughout his career where he had exhibitions just showing the drawings. So, so it was something that was important to him. His definition of drawing is quite broad so it could be a kind of simple charcoal or pencil drawing or something very highly finished like this which is a gouache but again there's there's areas here that are, there's something limb-like about these two two little elements that trail down that that kind of again give give a sense of of figuration somehow creeping in one of the um, uh, art historians who, who worked, knew Diebenkorn for, for most of his life and has written extensively on him, Gerald Norland, talks about um, when Diebenkorn was in Albuquerque and Urbana, he really wasn't terribly well off. He was a student, he had a young family. Paint and canvas have always been very expensive commodities, so he didn't want to experiment on the canvas. He experimented on paper. It was it was cheaper to buy. It was disposable, and I I think the argument is really that that um, his work on paper enabled him to develop his paintings in the way that he did. So it was a very interesting relationship between the two media. So this is Gorky's work, um, which he would have seen. This is um, Garden at Sochi, and very biomorphic um, abstraction here in Gorky, which clearly had an influence on on um, on Diebenkorn's work. Then he moves from Albuquerque to Urbana. He only stays in Urbana for a year. It's very far away from home. And um, it's, a, it's a very different climate for him. But he, he paints some, some wonderful pictures while he's here and, and, um, and you know, creates this significant body of work. During his time at Urbana, he was, again, he was teaching. He was actually teaching drawing to architectural students. Um, which doesn't sound terribly exciting for him, but you know the paintings that came out of, of, of this period are, are very important. And in 1952, um, this just before he, he, he went to Urbana, he saw a Matisse exhibition in Los Angeles which had been curated by Alfred Barr from um, the Museum of Modern Art. And it had quite a profound effect on him. And in this work you can see it's not just the colours that, that, that feel very reminiscent of Matisse. It's also, it's the drawing on it, it's the, it's the underdrawing, it's the, the pentimente that you see, which is, is something that, that kind of stays with him. Again, this, this work has got a subtitle, it's called The Archer, and once you know that, you can depict the form. You, you've got the, the bow here on the, the left-hand side, and this is the figure down here. 
but there's a real kind of strength and exuberance to the color. And then this is another significant work that he did in Urbana. Um, and again, you know, j just thinking about that, that loaf, that the flight that he took from Albuquerque to San Francisco, you get a real sense of the aerial view of the landscape. And it's, it's an interesting thing, you know, he, it's got a real topographical quality. Diebenkorn would always say he isn't a landscape artist, he's not painting the landscape, but he does recognize that the landscape somehow finds its way into his work. And I think it's very evident here. And then this is a drawing that he's, um, he's, he, he's done during the, the, the same period. Again, it's a gouache and paper. I, I, the, there's quite a lot of Gorky in here. I think it's been a, a, a real influence for him. And then he moves back to Berkeley. So he moves back to the Bay Area where he is, his family came from, where he was, he was brought up. Um, it's, a, it's, a familiar, it's a familiar environment for him. And there is a real exuberance in terms of color and light. You, know, you really see him capturing the light in these paintings. Again, it feels very much as if it's, it's, um, it's the landscape that's been depicted. There's that sense of the, of the bird's eye view as well. And something like like this one, um, Berkeley fifty seven. It's um, you, you get you you get that feeling of heat. You know the, this 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 idea of the intense light that you get. When he returned to Berkeley, he resumed friendships with with them um, with artists that he had got to know very well when he was doing his semesters there um, a few years earlier, namely David Park and Elmer Bischoff. Um, and he started join, joining them very regularly for life drawing classes. They had both turned from abstraction to representation during his time away. And um, I, 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 there's no record of his, his response to this, but he was very interested in this life drawing session. So together, every Wednesday night, they used to um, hire a model and, um, and, and do life drawing sessions. And what's interesting, actually, is yet again, he was doing these life drawing classes at the same time as he was p continuing to paint um, in the abstract. So the two, um, the two elements could, um, the two genres could coexist for him. And this is, a, this is one of the, the later abstract drawings that he did. It feels very kind of um, pared down. You, you, you do get that sense of, of the influence of European modernism in a drawing like this. And this is Diebenkorn drawing. Behind him, you can see there's a daybed, um, the, the, the sort of um, daybed Isaiah that a, a life model would, would use when they're, when they're drawing her. And what was, what was interesting about the whole idea of drawing for Diebenkorn is that, you know, with his, his friends, with his colleagues, it was something that was very, um, uh, something that you did as a group, something that was kind of, you know, bringing people together, whereas painting was, was a very isolated thing. He, um, he worked in a studio on his own. He didn't encourage a lot of visitors to the studio. He liked total concentration. He was very, very focused. Um, so, so it was, it was a, a much kind of, it was a very different way of working. So by 1956, he completely turned, um, towards representation, so he stopped painting in the abstract. And it was an incredibly big deal because by this time he was already celebrated as one of the West Coast leading abstract expressionists and was, was really, you know, gaining status but also selling his work, showing very regularly. So for him to change was seen as, as quite a radical thing to do. But there was also a kind of, there, there was another aspect to it as well because 
there's a kind of hierarchy um, to, to representation and abstraction. And, and, and in many ways, abstraction was seen as superior to figuration because it evoked this sense of the idea of the sublime. It, it kind of distilled um, the, the notion of kind of emotions and thought processes rather than, than and, and you know, this idea of the imagined rather than representing the everyday. So it was seen to be a, particularly at that time, it was seen to be a higher art form. So his, his move was an incredibly, um, an incredibly uh, sort of, you know, unprecedented one. And his account of the shift, it wasn't straightforward for him. His account of the shift is complex. And he noted that there was something missing from the process of, of, of painting in the abstract. He said it was becoming too habitual, too automatic. And he uses this phrase, he couldn't get into gear anymore. He needed to set himself new challenges. And this was very typical of, of Diebenkorn throughout his career, that he was pretty tough on himself and he was always setting himself new challenges. And one of the things I was quite amused to read, but I think it's got great truth to it actually, was one of the, um, the critics who reviewed our exhibition talked about um, Diebenkorn's life and that he had a, a, a wonderfully supportive wife, he had a very happy family life, he had a strong circle of friends, he was living in a place that he'd always lived, that, that, um, where he, 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 you know, he had family. Um, he didn't have to. He didn't have anything to fight against. It wasn't like Pollock and Rothko, who were railing against so many things and had this kind of pent-up fury and anger that they needed to express in their work. Diebenkorn hadn't really got anything like that to fight against. So what he did was he set himself these these intellectual challenges within his work. And here's another drawing, um, ink on paper. He did a huge number of these life drawings. Um, I, I, I don't know the actual number, but I do know that when he died, his widow, Phyllis um, Diebenkorn, gave as a gift to the National Gallery in Washington a, a group of drawings which number, I think is about 1,500, very sketchy life drawings. Well, actually, some of them are more finished than others, but and they're, they're not to, to, to be shown to the public, but they're there for students and, and scholars to study. And they are completely fascinating to look at. You get a, you know, if you look at them chronologically, you get a real sense of his development. But it also gives an idea about, you know, his, how prolific he was. And he, he continued to, to, to do these drawings on a very regular basis. And when there wasn't a model available, Phyllis, his wife, often sat for him. So you, you see her image, um, again and again in a lot of the drawings. And you, you also note in the drawings that he, um, he, works out things like patterns. He's very interested in the effect that patterns can make within an overall composition. So here you see the patterns of, of um, a, a, a quilt or something that the, the, um, the, the model is sitting against, but also things like stripes in blouses and skirts are something that he kind of in, in investigates within the drawings that then le later creep into the paintings. So he paints figuratively for 10 years in Berkeley from 1956 to 1966. And having been very successful as a, a West Coast abstract expressionist, he becomes equally successful as a figurative painter. Um, and this, this is a, a, a very important work that's come to us from um, the Purchase um, Neuberger collection in New York. Um, of a figure in, in a landscape. And he did a whole series of, of paintings across these 10 years that show figures in, in, in some sort of communion with the landscape. And, and it's always a sing, single figure. They, 
I, I don't think that they, um, he has painted them to have a kind of psychological depth. I don't think that's what he's looking for. He's looking for something very different in these works, and he's interrogating this interesting relationship between the, um, the figure, which is always in the foreground and always um, surrounded by elements of domesticity or, or indoor life. You know, so you've got this real contrast between that, between those things that represent kind of civilization and the landscape beyond. And you can imagine, actually, if you, if you remove the figure and, and, and take out those elements that, that represent civilization, it's a very abstracted work. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting um, interrogation on his part, and you know I, I talked about the the psychological um, aspect to it, and the fact that he never gives his models faces, they're never clearly um, um, illustrated. Um, that's that's not really what he's after. He's not after a portrait as such, although he did the occasional portrait. That really wasn't his interest. It was it was more the person with the landscape. So during his time as a figurative painter, he painted in many different genres. And we saw the life drawings, which were incredibly important to him. But he also, um, there's a, 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 I included a, a, an ornery Matisse here, just to give a sense of you know, what, he was what he was trying to do. So you've got two figures. There's, there's more of a kind of um, psychological tension between the two figures because there's two of them but you've got the garden beyond so you can see that he was um he was very engaged in, in the work of Matisse but he was also um interested in looking at um pure landscape having avoided um calling himself a landscape painter in his earlier abstract um, period. And he was also very interested in, in still lives as well. So we've included elements of all of those in the um, in the exhibition. So Sea Wall is rather a small painting, but absolutely beautiful and very, very strong. And again, you've got these Matisse-like colours, the very strong green and the blue. And the texture of the paint is quite extraordinary. You know, the, the, the amount of working that he's done in, on, on this green the different colours, tones of green that are present here, which gives such a kind of life and vitality and, and that sense of the very, very bright light that you get in California. And this is a, this is a very beautiful portrait, probably Phyllis, um, just, just looking down, concentrating. You get that impression that um, because the features aren't very clearly um, described in the in the painting, that the um, the focus of the of the subject is elsewhere. You get the the impression that she's very intensely engaged in in reading or or working on something that's out of view. But in 1964, a group, including this work actually, a group of these figurative works were shown at Waddington galleries in Cork Street and it was only very recently in a conversation that um, David Hockney had said to me that's where I first saw Deepen Corn's work he said I, I saw it at Leslie Waddington's gallery and was very very struck by it and he said and it was the first um, it was the first Californian's work I'd ever seen um, and and of course you know he, he, he was there himself um, a couple of years later so I talked about that kind of the, the, the struggle about you know reconciling the figure with the landscape and this is a this is a more extreme version of it this is a wonderful work very big and we've hung it in, in close proximity to the um, to the ocean park works because in terms of scale and the architecture of the work there's a there's, there's this kind of similarity between the two but here he's got um, an, Im a, an image you've got a portrait here 
the head virtually completely turned away from us but the portrait is painted so you've got a painting within a painting and then the chair which is facing in the wrong direction looks as if it's been left there by the you know by, by maybe the, the subject of the portrait you've got the 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 the, the building um shown in the portrait of the woman is also here in the in the larger painting and then the looking glass which feels very as if it's it's you know there's a renaissance element to that is reflecting the, the primary colors within within the painting so it's a really um it's a real exercise actually again it's that notion of Diebenkorn testing himself making life as difficult as he can for himself he was a hugely intelligent man and i think this is something that really comes out in his work and this is this is one of the finest examples of it um, I, I mentioned earlier that he um, he painted still lives. These are very small, but they're extraordinary, so they're worth having a very close look at. Um, this is scissors um, painted in '59. Um, very very little painting. He loved tools. He loved things that were practical. He was a practical person, and he loved practical things. He also had said um, at some stage that he didn't feel comfortable painting on a small scale, but these are very, very small and very, very successful compositionally. So I think he's, he's, he's done it very well. I had occasion before the exhibition opened to run through the list of images with the director of the um, Musée Matisse in northern France, and he was he was he was delighted by the, the various images. But when he alighted on this of the, the scissors, he was absolutely enchanted. He said, "But these are these the, you know these are Matisse's scissors. These are the dressmaking scissors that you can only get in in the northern France. These would be the scissors that Matisse would have done used to to do his his famous cutouts." So I thought that was that was really wonderful to get his take on it. Then this was the interior of a studio. When he had a studio in Berkeley, he um, he frequently painted it. Often painted it using a mirror to look at the view behind him. Um, and this is this is, is is one of those views. He he was very interested in this studio. It, it was um, quite quite an old building. And when he moved into it, he 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 there was a lot of built-in furniture, and he pulled it away from the walls, which revealed loads of layers of peeling paint, which is something that absolutely fascinated him. And I couldn't help thinking that that somehow might have found its way into the Ocean Park series, um, which which was is the last series. That we come to later, this idea of kind of layers of, of paint upon paint. And the knife in water, a very kind of academic subject, really beautifully done. Then Cityscape, this is one of the, the later works that he did. He used to drive around the, the Bay Area looking for, for good locations to um to paint, and, and this was one that he found. Um, interestingly, he didn't paint um, en plein air. He painted um, from memory and imagination back in the studio. And it was really only the life drawings that he, um, where he used to paint directly from the motif. And um, so that's really the, the, the only example of him painting directly. 
um, but but these would be done back in the studio, and they are imagined. We our understanding is that this road, which runs, you, you can see it running up the middle there, that there were buildings on one side, on the the left hand side, as he's depicted, but there were also buildings on the right hand side. But they have they have kind of slightly disappeared, and there is a kind of element to that bird's eye view. Um, you know, it's it's more kind of the plane coming into land, but you do feel as if you're hitting it at quite an unusual angle. And you know there is something very reminiscent in this in this right-hand area here of some of the earlier abstracted works that he did in um, Urbana and Albuquerque. So in 1964, he visited Russia with his wife. He went on a um, a group tour to um, to Russia, and he spent um, time at the Hermitage and the Pushkin, and was absolutely bowled over by their collection of art, and in particular the works of Matisse. And when he came back, he, um, he, you know, this influence carried itself into his um, into his paintings. This is a small drawing. Um, again, you know, you, you've got that notion of the aerial view looking down onto the plate and, and, and cup on the table. Again, it's those kind of practical objects. But they also give the tablecloth a sense of scale, which I think is 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 really is is really interesting here in such a small work. Um, but the the detail of the cloth is very very beautifully done. Um, this is in the exhibition, whereas this next one that I'm going to show you isn't. Um, but I thought it was quite a good thing to, to show in, today. Um, it's the same material. I've, I've looked at it very closely. So this pattern here is the same um, material as he used in the earlier drawing. And this is reflections of a visit to Leningrad. And it really is an homage to Matisse. Um, but like you know, just thinking back to the drawing of the woman in the landscape, it, 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 there's, there's really two parts to it. You've got, you, you know, you've got your in, interior, the domesticated um, in, interior of the um, of of the the room, and then you've got your outside, the landscape area, which again feels quite abstract, but very, very strongly reminiscent of Matisse in terms of colours. It's quite a big picture. In 1966, he's coming to the end of this, this period of figuration. Um, he doesn't realize it, um, but he is. And he um, goes to see a, a, an exhibition of Henri Matisse, Henri Matisse's work at um, UCLA, um, which includes this painting. And this painting was something that he's all, he'd always been aware of, and it was a real touchstone for him. Um, this view of Notre Dame painted in 1914, which is now in MoMA's collection, and it's a very, very beautiful work. And he became increasingly fascinated in those works by Matisse, where Matisse is kind of coming right to the edge of um, of figuration, um, and but but doesn't quite tip into abstraction. But they're very very, you know, there's a real abstract quality to them. And we saw earlier in some of um, Dibukorn's work, you know, the Archer, where you had all of the the lines drawn underneath the pentamente. They're very visible here. There's a real kind of you know working of the paint and the color. That sense of light that comes from the open window that that flows into the room. And when you look at a very late drawing from Diebenkorn's um, figurative period. Um, again, belongs to, to it's in MoMA's collection. There's a great similarity here. You have the same idea of the, you know the lines, sort of some of them are very strong, outlining the the, the the shape of the body, but others are kind of more submerged amongst the paint uh, under the paint. There's a real kind of working of the paint, a real scumbling. Um, so it's you know there there is a 
there's a real kind of um, influence that you can see from that painting. And, you know, I think we can see his, his, his work beginning to change. And when he um, when he kind of looked back at um, kind of retrospectively at his um, his figurative period, I quote here. He said, "I can remember that when I stopped abstract painting and started figure painting, it was as though a kind of constraint came in that was welcomed because I felt that in the last of the abstract paintings around 55, it was almost as if I could do too much too easily. There was nothing hard to come up against." And suddenly, the figure paintings furnished a lot of this. So his next move then is um, to LA and to Ocean Park. He moves to a studio in Ocean Park. He um, moves next door to Sam Francis, who is the, the most famous West Coast abstract expressionist. And Sam Francis is a nice big studio with a nice big window. And um, as soon as Sam Francis moves out, Deben Corn moves in. And this window was something that completely fascinated him. And he also did some later figurative drawings of the, w the window and the view beyond. But it's this kind of, it's the construction of the window. It's this kind of triangle that, that's created when the window is, is, um, is, is positioned open that was something that kind of found its way into his paintings. So he claims that he didn't see it coming. He didn't see that there was going to be this change in his work from um, figur figurative back into to abstraction again. Um, this is him in his studio, in the larger of the studios. And the paintings of Ocean Park are all, very, are, are all big. They, um, they're as big as he could manage to get into the studio. But he also loved that idea of kind of being able to encompass them, you know, when he was painting. It's something a lot of painters enjoy, is that kind of physical reach, so that you're, you know, you're painting to the outer corners and using the whole body. And it also gives them this, this incredible scale where, you know, as a viewer, you're standing in front of them, you feel as if they somehow encompass you. So the scale of these works are very important. But interestingly, just as pop art was beginning to take hold both in Britain and America, and the figure was being returned to the center of, of, um, of the canvas again, Deben Korn starts to move away from it. And, you know, maybe as a, 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 a example of, of them not wanting to be categorized again or you know moving away from trends but by the time he had started to embark on the Ocean Park work and this is one of the early works from um, from 1970 by the time he embarked on the Ocean Park works his journey from abstraction to representation and back again had given him such a rich and deep understanding of the language of painting and drawing you know the two things are coming together that he was able to unify the two approaches in a fluid expression within this body of work so there's a real kind of idea of a harmonious union between the, the, the painting and the drawing um, John Elderfield, um, the art historian, writes that it is most notable in the Ocean Park series that drawing runs through Diebenkorn's composition as if it does not insist on its importance because its importance is that of mortar between bricks, hardly noticeable at times, but what holds the structure together and keeps it firm. So this is one of the early ones where the the um, the, the the structure of the the Ocean Park series is really coming together, but there's a crispness to it. You know, it's almost like a kind of stained glass window. There's a clarity of line, and then you just move on um, a year, and it, they become much looser. You can see that he's experimenting with the form. 
But it's this one which we've hung um, on the end wall in the galleries upstairs that's the most beautiful of them all, um, which comes from Philadelphia. And it's that translucence of light that's quite extraordinary that you don't get from a, an image or a slide. I mean, you can see, you know, this is a classic um, work, uh, Ocean Park work, where you have all of the incident kind of happening in this top corner, and you've got these horizontal and vertical lines converging. He used a ruler for some of the lines, you know, drawing in charcoal, but drew others freehand as well. So there's a real kind of complexity to the, um, to, to the makeup of it. Um, and then that you know that the paint is put on in so many layers, and it kind of brings you back to that idea of his fascination with the peeling layers of paint in his former studio. But it, the the luminosity is something quite extraordinary that he's able to achieve in these works. And he showed them; uh, they, they became you know like his other representational work. They were picked up on almost immediately, and and um, very very much sought after. And um, he, he exhibited them um, first in the early 1970s. And an art critic writing in the New York Times, John Kennedy, wrote, Deben Corn seems to have found his springboard for a truly individual style in some near abstract Matisse's, the later Matisse's of, of, of 1909 to 1916. Structurally, it is, it is as if Matisse at this juncture had developed as an abstract painter in the person of his protege, by example. So that really kind of, you know, I don't think Deben Korn would have said it of himself, but, you know, other people saw it. And then in, in 95, the Ocean Park works were shown in, um, some of the Ocean Park works were shown in the Marlborough Galleries in London. And um, the arts correspondent for The Observer, Nigel Gosling, wrote at the time, Deben Korn is better to known to us as a figurative artist, because, of course, in the 60s, they'd seen his work at Waddington's. But just as an abstract structure gave strength to his landscapes and nudes, so a vision of melting sea and sky, light and form, seemed to illuminate the ostensibly austere confections. It is, it is a very English recipe, and the pictures can be seen as a Californian tribute to Turner. I would guess them to be much to our native taste, which I think is a lovely quote. So this is a later one, very, very nuanced. Um, uh, one of those works, it doesn't grab you quite immediately, but it's, it's one of those works if you stand in front of. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's interesting for us, actually, because you know he painted a big series of these. There was 145 altogether. He did them over 20 years, so he spent a lot of time in each one, and he released them um, in series and kind of batches. So he'd live with, with a few of them. He'd hold on to a few of them when he was still working on a batch and then release them. There was massive demand for them. So institutions across America were queuing up to buy them. And they were being, you know, they were being sold to, to various institutions. And I think there's very few institutions that have more than one across America. And we don't have any in Europe, which is um, a terrible pity. But, you know, he, he was kind of a victim of his own success. And there was a show um, two years ago by the um, the, the co-curator of this exhibition, Sarah Bancroft, where she brought all of the Ocean work, Park work together. And people who have, I didn't see the show, but people have seen it said it's quite extraordinary actually because the differences between each of the works is so nuanced that you go in looking at one picture and you actually think that you're still looking at the same picture when you come out the other end, but you're not. It's, it's you know, it's, 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 they're incredibly different and they really do develop in an extraordinary way. This is a little drawing um, with collage. He often worked in, with collage and paper. 
Um, and then there's another a, a charcoal drawing, which again gives that, that idea of the whole architectural um, construction of the Ocean Park series. And he continued to work on paper. He'd use, he'd use these drawings pinned up on his wall to refer to, to work on when a painting wasn't going well. He'd, he'd, he'd go between the two all the time. So they, were, they always had a presence. And this isn't in the exhibition, but it's, it's just such a wonderful evocation of that light and translucence that he's able to achieve. It's almost like it's been painted on, on, on vellum, you know, for it, 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 it glows. It's the most extraordinary work. It's, he's got such a kind of light touch. It's, so I just wanted to, um, to just note about, you know, why he isn't so well here, known here. You know, we had the show in Waddington's in the, in the 60s, and clearly it was very successful. People were interested. In the, in the 1970s, he showed some Ocean Park work at the Marlborough. Um, he had the retrospective at the White Chapel in 1992. Um, he's shown work across Europe, you know, in the Venice Biennale when he, was, when he was still alive. You know, was he a victim of his own success? He sold work really well. Um, he was shown a, a, um, across a lot of commercial galleries in America throughout his career, so both on the West Coast and on the East Coast as well. Um, but one of the things about him is that he was never really affiliated to any particular group. He avoided the um, being linked to the second generation abstract expressionists. He um, was only a Bay Area figurative artist for a very short period of time, for 10 years, and then he moved into something else. He was, you know, he was very much his own person. He was following his own artistic impulses and refused to be influenced by movements at the time. Although, you know, he was, he was so engaged in both what was going on and what had gone before, and that found its way into his work. So maybe that's that's one of the the, the problems that because he it's hard to describe his place in American um, modern art history. So I end by showing two beautiful etchings towards the the, the end of his life. He um, he was was quite unwell and ab unable to paint. He just couldn't paint in a big st scale. He couldn't stand in the studio, but he was always a very keen etcher. He worked with Crown Point Press, and he, he did, over his career he did the most beautiful prints. And this was um, uh, a commission that he had to um, to provide some etchings, etching plates for. Um, uh, an illustration of an edition of um, W.B. Yeats's poems, which included prints of a civilian coat, um, which develops from the, fr the, the very strong um, figurative, which is here, you see here, to the much more abstracted, which feels much more related to, to Ocean Park and that kind of architectural form. And the, the poem that these were inspired by was the apparitions, where all three verses end with the same two lines. Fifteen apparitions have I seen, the worst a coat upon a coat hanger. And one is inevitably reminded of the, um, the, 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 the marine jacket that he, um, he drew quite early in his career. But there's also that kind of, you know, his imminent death. There's something very melancholy about these particular works. But it just reinforces as well this flexibility that he had artistically. He can move between the representational and the abstract as well. So just to end, I'll, I'll, I'll read a quote from him that relates to this quality that he was always trying to find in his work, right from the start, from when he was working in Albuquerque through to Ocean Park, to the, the, the last works. He was always searching for something called rightness. So it kind of, it, it's a transcendence of all of the genres that he worked through and the influences that came to bear on his work. 
I quote, I attempt to make the lines and shapes right, and because spatiality is intrinsic to a line-shape continuum, it too must be dealt with, made right. One's sense of rightness involves absolutely the whole person, and hopefully others, in some basic sense. What is important to artistic communication is only this basic part, but if the artist doesn't make his work right, he has no idea what he has left out. Thank you. We do have time for some questions. I was just going to open it up. Um, you mentioned that the Ocean Park series aren't available in any collections in Europe. Are there any of Deben Corn's works available in London to see? Um, yes, yeah. there, there are very little. But um, when Waddington's had his, Leslie Waddington had his exhibition in the 60s, there was a few pieces that were bought um, by, uh, by UK residents then, and they are still in this country, but in private collections, sadly, so not something that we, we get to see. I think there's, there's no paintings in the Tate Gallery. Okay, so I think you've got until June for the exhibition here to <laughs> make the most of it. So are there any questions from the floor? We do have a mic at the back, there's one just here. So why didn't the Tate buy any work? Um, uh, well, I have no idea. I mean, I think maybe at the point, well, you know, I, I think you can you can question why the Tate haven't got strong holdings in abstract expressionism as well. I mean, maybe European institutions were quite slow at realizing that the centre of art had swapped from Paris to 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 America, and I think maybe that do, was the kind do, of do root you think of politics was involved. I I don't know. I I really don't know, and I. I I think as well that there was such a demand for his work, particularly his later work, by American institutions that they really, no one else got a look in. Just looking at the little bit you've shown us, it just makes me feel that there's got to be some musical influence in there as well. Is there? Yes, there is. Yes. Yes, it's something I didn't have time to mention, but he was very, very interested in classical music and jazz. And first um, was exposed to, to, to classical music when he went to Stanford and um, played music regularly in his studio and tried very much, I understand, to, um, to match the music to the, what he considered the mood of the work that he was working on. And one reads that in the early days, Park, Bischoff and Diebenkorn used household paint. Did Diebenkorn continue to do that or can you tell us anything about the materials he used, the oil paint that he used? Um, well, because the, the Paintings are still with us and still still in good good condition. He 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 must have moved on to onto proper paint. So I think you know if it was household paint, we would have real conservation problems with them. And um, although some of them are slightly delicate, um, that they are proper paint and properly primed canvases as well. Did he do any work that was influenced by his trip to New York? Yes, I mean, I think that he was, you know, I found it interesting that his, um, of his interest in de Kooning, but also, you know, out of all of the ones to, to, to alight on, Motherwell and Baziotis, you know, not Pollock, not Rothko, not particularly still, but, you know, those two. Um, and, yeah, I, I, it did find its way into his work a little bit, not greatly. 
And I, I, I remember reading when I was doing research for this that, you know, Hans Hoffmann, who was the, 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 the tutor that came from Europe, who was a huge influence in so many of the first generation abstract expressionists. Deepen Korn did encounter him and, 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 and I think, you know, for a tutorial or something like that and was, was, um, I don't know. I, I mean, he didn't, he didn't feel his influence as strongly as others had done. He was he, he 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 didn't think he was of great significance to him as an artist. So I think there was always that kind of slight resistance, that slight distance from him and the other, and the the abstract expressionists. And of course, there were different generations. So I mean, had he been in New York, he would have been second generation. So he was slightly younger than all of them. You said he was independent of mind and movements, but did he work independently of galleries and agents? Could that be why he was less exposed in Europe? And less marketed, if you like, in Europe? Um, no, that's an agent? A, yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, he, he always had dealers, I mean, both in the West Coast and in New York as well. You know, Poindexter looked after him in New York. He was introduced to Poindexter Gallery by, um, by Klein, Franz Klein. Um, and then, you know, over here he had Waddington's and, and, um, and Marlborough. Um, I, 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 I honestly don't know whether that was a that was a good thing or a bad thing. You know, maybe he was showing too much in commercial galleries and not enough in in, in group shows in museums. I'm not sure. Okay, lovely. Well, thank you. The exhibition is open until June. If you've been, go again. Um, there's so much more to see in these paintings, and if you haven't been, do go. Um, but please join me in thanking Edith Devani for a wonderful lecture. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.